Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. This is your host, Bernice Heilbrunn. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. David Stern at Harvard University. Dr. Stern is the Harry Harry Starr Professor of Classical and Modern Jewish and Hebrew Literature, as well as Professor of Comparative Literature, with joint appointments in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations and the Department of Comparative Literature. One of his areas of specialization is the history of the Jewish book as a material object. And in connection with his work in this area, he came across a manuscript that had been not looked at for hundreds of years. Ultimately, it became the subject of the book just recently published by Penn State University Press called The Monk's Haggadah, a 15th century illuminated codex from the monastery of Tergensee, with a prologue by Friar Erhard von Pappenheim. In addition to the Monk's Haggadah, we'll hear Dr. Stern speak about another publication of his, the Washington Haggadah. That book was published by Harvard University Press in 2011. Now, on to our visit with Dr. Stern. You'll hear at the outset a few beeps of the phone as it rings, and then we'll be in conversation with Dr. Stern. Hi, Dr. Stern. How are you today? Okay, how are you? Fine, thank you. So let me begin this interview by asking you if you could please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you found this Haggadah. Fine. Um, Well, my name is David Stern, and I'm now a professor at Harvard University. I'm the Star Professor of Classical and Modern Hebrew and Jewish Literature in the Departments of Near Eastern Language and Civilization and the Department of Comparative Literature. And I found the, um, well, the, the two Haggadot have different stories. Um, the, the older story, the longer story, and the older story is the Monk's Haggadah. In the year uh, 2000, as the millennium was turning, um, I was in Jerusalem on a sabbatical, and I was working on a book which included a chapter on the history of the Haggadah as a material object, as I say, a book, an actual book. And at a certain point, I decided that um, I, I wanted to check out a theory of mine. And uh, in Jerusalem, if uh, in the basement of the National Library, what's now the National Library of Israel, there's an institute for microfilmed Hebrew manuscripts in which roughly, I don't know, 90% of the world's Hebrew manuscripts, wherever they are, uh, Germany, France, England, New York, Bombay, Shanghai even, uh, 90% of the world's Hebrew manuscripts are on microfilm there, and a scholar sitting at one of their desks with before an antiquated microfilm reader, can actually compare manuscripts without having to travel to all these different places. 
And given the fact that I was in Jerusalem and I wanted, had this theory, I decided to check it out by simply like looking at all the Haggadot that they had on microfilm. And I don't remember how many there were, about 100. These are just manuscripts, handwritten books. And uh, so I started going through them on microfilm. And what I needed to look for was something very small. It took me roughly 10 seconds to see if it was there in the manuscript, but I had to run through the entire manuscript to find this one thing. And I would run through the manuscripts at like 60 miles an hour. <laughs> and I'm running through one microfilm of these German manuscripts, and all of a sudden, these pages with Latin on them flash in front of me. And it's, initially, I just see pages in Latin, which was unusual in the middle of a Hebrew manuscript. Mm -hmm. And then the pages of the beautiful illustrated Haggadah flashed by with Latin inscriptions on the top of the page or on the margins. So I put my foot on the brakes. <laughs> I backed up, made sure I wasn't hallucinating. <laughs> and I wasn't. There was Latin, both in the prologue, you know, both these full pages of Latin and then these inscriptions. And I thought, this is really interesting. What could this be? So what would one would do? This was all before computers, you understand, before, you know, everything had been digitalized. Uh, we were still in the dark ages then. And uh, I ordered a printout of the microfilm uh, and, you know, of the Haggadah and the Latin pages. Now, uh, I was... As I say, I was in Jerusalem on a sabbatical. I was also part of an institute. And one of the other fellows of the institute was a professor from Germany uh, named Christoph Marxis, who um, is an expert on early church history and has extremely good Latin. I mean, I've studied medieval Latin too, but my Latin's pretty rusty. His is really state-of-the-art. And I went to him and I said, Will you sit down and help me read this prologue? These few, there are about 10 pages of Latin. And he said, sure. And we started, we sat down together and started reading it, but the Latin actually was quite difficult, and medieval Latin is often written in abbreviations. They don't write out the full word, they write it out in an abbreviated form, and you basically today need a kind of dictionary of the abbreviations in order to work through it. You know, otherwise you'll spend forever trying to read one of these manuscripts. And he didn't have one of these dictionaries with him there. Um, he said, let me take it with me back to Germany. He was going back to Germany in a couple of months. And there I, I'll have one of my research assistants help me and we'll read through the manuscript. So he took it back and... Uh, about six months later, he writes me a letter saying, this is absolutely amazing what we found. Because on one hand, this prologue seems to have been written by a monk or a friar. We didn't at that point even know who it was, who is incredibly knowledgeable about Jewish practices. At least the, he's very knowledgeable about the practices connected to Passover and the Seder and the Haggadah. But he also tells you things like how to put Christian blood in your matzah. He gives you a recipe. And he even tells you what you do if you can't get fresh blood, how you can use hydrated blood. 
He said, this is an absolutely, you know, bombshell of a document. We have to continue working on this. And that's really where the story begins to unfold. And, uh, and from that point on, it took us roughly 13 years to finish it. Um, so that's, that's how I got, I found that the, the Washington Haggadah, uh, several years later, Harvard University Press decided to put out a facsimile of the Washington Haggadah, which is called the Washington Haggadah, not because it had anything to do with George Washington. He did not <laughs> use it as a Seder. He did not write it. He never owned it. It's in Washington, D.C., in the Library of Congress. And Hebrew manuscripts are often called after the names of the cities in which the libraries in which they're today owned are found. Um Harvard University Press uh, had been in discussions with the Library of Congress about putting out books about some of their great books. And the Librarian of Congress, James Billington, is a great fan of the Hebrew book, the Jewish book. Um, Partly because he thinks, because Jewish books were written wherever Jews have lived and because Jews have lived everywhere in the world, he really views the Jewish book as a kind of universal book. And he thinks it's incredibly important for understanding the book in general, and he's correct. So he's extremely proud of his Hebrew books in the Library of Congress, and from what I've been told, his favorite book is this Haggadah, which is definitely the greatest Haggadah in America. Um, uh, It's a 15th century South German Haggadah, which is the, the Washington Haggadah, the uh, Monk's Haggadah is also a South German, late 15th century illustrated Haggadah. They're very, in many ways, the two Haggadah are very, very similar. And uh, that's uh, James Billington's favorite book, favorite Hebrew book in the Library of Congress. And it's a very beautiful Haggadah. And Harvard University Press decided to put it out as a facsimile. Uh, and they asked me if I would write one of the two introductions. They also asked a colleague who's an art historian in Israel, Katrin Kogdenapel, to write an essay on the illustrations. And uh, and we both agreed to do it, and they put out, and it's a truly wonderful book. Uh, it's beautifully produced. Both books are beautifully produced. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and both of them really have quite fascinating stories behind them. I mean, the Washington Haggadah, how it got to the Library of Congress is also a story. Um, but, uh, but the Washington, but the Monk's Haggadah is definitely more complicated and truly exceptional story. Mm-hmm. Well, before we leave the Washington Haggadah, how did it get to Washington? And I understand also it was on exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York in 2011. Right. When we, um, when, when Harvard put out the, the facsimile edition, we convinced the Metropolitan Museum, well, we convinced the Library of Congress to lend it to the Metropolitan Museum to put it on display. And uh, and we did a public program there, and it was wonderful. Loads of people saw it, and the Metropolitan did a beautiful little display because the, the, uh, the scribe illustrator of the Washington Haggadah, a man named Joel Ben Simeon, who is one of the great scribe illustrators of you know, Jewish scribe illustrators of the of the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. the late Middle Ages especially. Um, he was he was a great realist, and his pictures, in his pictures, he really in the Haggadah he really depicted the world in which he lived. 
and uh, not only the people of the world in which he lived, and I've got his full of pictures of Jews doing all the rituals and various acts like cooking dinner for the Seder as they, you know, as they were done in the late 15th century in South Germany in Joel's day. But he also pictured all the objects that would have been found in a Jew's house. So they're very, very realistic, and they're small drawings, but they're very, very wonderful, small, realistic drawings. And the Met happens to own a lot of those objects, oh. you know, pottery or, you know, plates or you, silver utensils, you know, food utensils, spoons, ladles, and so on, as they're pictured in the Haggadah. So they did a little exhibit around the Haggadah of the real world in which, of objects in the real world in which the Haggadah lived mm-hmm. and was produced. And uh, it was a great little exhibit. Um, uh, the Washington Haggadah came to America um, because of a very, very interesting coincidence. Um, the Library of Congress began, you know, during the period of the Revolutionary War, at the time when America first became a nation, and originally composed, really, of Thomas Jefferson's private library, which included a few Hebrew books. But there was a fire, and it was really, it was a library for Congress. That's why it's called the Library of Congress. It was actually for Congress. There was a fire, and then in the beginning, the first quarter or half of the uh, 19th century, they began to rebuild the library. But it wasn't really until the beginning of the 20th century that the Library of Congress, uh, who at the time was a very important, serious, you know, nationally, if not internationally known, librarian, a real professional and a man with a vision, was appointed the Librarian of Congress, and he really decided that he would turn it into America's equivalent of the British Library or the uh, Bibliothèque Nationale in France, a real true national library that would include great manuscripts from all over the world. Um, You know, it would be a real repository of world culture for America, as well as for scholars and, you know, and also for lay people, for all Americans. And uh, and he began to sell books, buy books from book dealers representing every country. Now, there was a book dealer in America who had come also around the turn of the century named Ephraim Dinart, who was an Eastern European Jew who had gotten into the book business in Europe. He was the assistant to one of the great book dealers uh, of the late 19th century, who was a, uh, an extraordinary businessman, a forger, uh, a wheedler of books out of poor people. He was a real operator. <laughs> and uh, and Darnard learned his trade from this other book dealer, maybe even learned it too well, but he too became a great book dealer um, and was very adept at getting books for cheap prices um, out of innocent people, and then selling them at great profits. But he amassed great collections, and then he emigrated to America, and he, he was a real character. He uh, was also a printer. Uh, he was a early Zionist. Uh, he wrote a lot of polemical books. He had a lot of hatreds. He hated Hasidic Judaism, for example, and wrote a lot of books against Hasidic Judaism. 
if there was somebody he disliked, he would write a book against them. Um, and he had his own printing press, and he wrote actually the first bibliography of, America, of Hebrew books printed in America, too. But he had a dream which was really to create a library like the British Library or the Bibliothèque Nationale for Hebrew books, for Jewish books in America as well. He wanted to do this. And in a strange way, this very patrician, waspy Librarian of Congress crossed paths with this slightly unclean, unshaven Eastern European Jewish book dealer, and Dinard, through the agency of some wealthy Jews, uh, it was, I, think, I believe it was Cyrus Adler of Philadelphia, bought, mm -hmm. um, Dinard sold his collections to the Library of Congress. He actually sold three separate collections to the Library of Congress, and that laid the basis for the Library of Congress's truly great Judaica collection today. I mean, it's one of the world's great collections in the world today. And the Washington Haggadah was one of those books. Very interesting. And Joel Ben Simeon, who you, uh, I think, just shared with us, was the uh, person who prepared the illuminations, um, is mentioned by Sarit Shalev Aini in one of the um, chapters of the Monks Haggadah yes. that you've just uh, published um, as the most famous illuminator of the uh, second half of the 15th century. So, um, yes, yeah, so he produced, I mean, he wasn't the only scribe illustrator, but he produced more Haggadot than anyone else. And he was a truly great scribe and illustrator. And the model that he set for the Haggadah, you know, whether he set all the details, I don't think anyone knows, but his Haggadah really are quite representative of what an illustrated Haggadah in the late 15th century would have looked like mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and what you would expect to find in one. Mm -hmm. And uh, perhaps to some extent the illustrations serve as an ethnographic reference to um, illustrate uh, what might have been in Jewish households and how the rituals were performed? Yes, they, they picture Jews doing all the ritual act actions from the, you know, the, the, the Kafka mates, the search mm -hmm. for uh, leavened bread, which takes place on the night before Passover, mm -hmm. where people walk around with a candle looking in nooks and crannies for little pieces of bread that your five-year-old son went and hid there. Mm -hmm. Okay? That's all pictured in the Haggadah. Mm -hmm. And uh, in one of his, I got is in the pictures. Uh, the, the family sitting around the table, the uh, head of the household holding a kiddush cup, holding the matzah, mm -hmm. uh, hiding the afikomen is actually found in some of these uh, haggadot. Mm -hmm. The wives cooking dinner. The on the Dianu page, the uh, traditional illustration of the Dianu page is a picture of. The women, sometimes assisted by a male servant, roasting the lamb or meat for dinner, mm -hmm. and which is what you actually have in the in the Washington Haggadah. Oh. It's on the Dianu page, probably as a reminder to the woman, to the women that's sitting at the table, that now is the time to get up and start preparing to serve the food. Uh -huh. 
<laughs> How clever. So these are very, yeah, these are informative. These are also have little hints to people to say they're, what they're supposed to do at that moment. Mm-hmm. And what, the one that I particularly uh, like is the one where the wise son is teaching the simple son, uh, which seems to lend a real humanity to the discussion of the four sons. Yes, yes, yes. Um, wait, is he teaching the simple son there? Um, Actually, um, I may be wrong. My copy, uh, the copy I bought has not yet arrived, and I was, oh, I was oh, looking oh, online oh. to yeah, find I what I could. Not, I don't think he's teaching. He's studying himself. The simple son, in this case, actually is reading a rather large book to himself. And it looks like a picture book, too, from what you can tell. Uh, it looks like actually, it looks very much like the page of the Haggadah in which the illustration is found. The son who doesn't know how to ask the question is actually pictured as a clown, sort of he's wearing a jester's outfit. The evil son is traditionally in these Haggadah pictured as a soldier, um, which is a complicated picture. It's partly because Jews don't like soldiers. Soldiers often chase Jews, especially in the Middle Ages. Um, Sometimes they kill them after they caught them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the uh, the soldier is also a figure, uh, a typical iconographic figure for the god Mars, the Roman god Mars, who's the god of war, but also the angry god. Mm-hmm. And the wicked son is the angry son. So there's an association there, too. But each of them is actually pictured in separate pictures. You might be thinking of that picture that I just mentioned about the... Uh, the the women preparing the dinner in the Washington Haggadah uh, on the Dayenu page uh, they're they're standing in front of this huge sort of like stew pot uh, uh, you know uh, cooking the meal or the soup but on a uh, spit there's a servant who is turning the spit and roasting the side of lamb or beef, whatever it is. Um, and he's sitting there and he's drinking beer while he's turning the spit. But Katri Kogmanapel, my uh, co-editor there, noticed that this figure, this man, who's definitely a non-Jewish servant in the family, has a huge goiter. A goiter, you know, is uh, uh, this large... Um, you know, golf ball-like or larger uh, swelling on the neck, and it's caused by uh, sodium deficiency. You don't have enough salt. Yes. And it actually happens to be very common in the south of Germany, northern Italy, in the area around the Alps. Many people would have goiters uh, because of sodium deficiency in that area. And Jolben Simeon, we know, traveled back and forth between North Italy and South Germany and probably saw a lot of people with goiters. Mm-hmm. Now, in medieval, late medieval culture, uh, people with goiters were often treated as monstrosities. This was considered a, a really serious deformation. Uh, they would often be, you know, not expelled from societies, but they were sort of pariahs. It was something that was truly looked down upon. In this picture, this poor guy 
is sitting there happily chugging his beer. He's clearly part of the family. The women are on one side. He's on the other side. It's all one happy little group. Um, it welcomes him into it, even though he's a Gentile, even though he has a goiter. And, uh, and the Haggadah, that picture to me actually epitomizes sort of this kind of democratic spirit in this Haggadah that makes it a very, very fitting Haggadah to be in the Library of Congress. It's, you know, this is all a kind of accident of its history, but, uh, but it's almost as if it were fated to end up in America because it really does have this kind of open-hearted generosity toward everyone um, that uh, we like to think is part of our American culture. So um, a, a beautiful placing of a uh, apparently quite beautiful Haggadah and a lovely uh, facsimile edition. Uh, I, I wonder if we can transition now to the monks' Haggadah, which sure. uh, has quite a different, uh, quite a different telling uh, in many ways. Uh, and perhaps you want to share with our listeners uh, the fact that uh, this uh, ended up in a monastery at uh, Tergense, um and tell us a little bit about what you discovered. Uh, and I know this was all a process of discovery as Christoph Marquis and uh, Sari Chalaveni uh, did their research together with your research uh, to uh, to discover what uh, I know Chalaveni uh, started out by saying was uh, appeared to have been and had always been discussed as a typical Haggadah of the period and ended up being quite unique. Right. Yeah, it, it was it, it was an incredible research trip, a journey uh, that the three of us took. Uh, and as I say it took us basically around fifteen years, almost from the time that it began, which I described earlier, how I accidentally discovered it, and uh, the t- until the facsimile actually came out. Uh, well, the story and it was an incredible journey, let me say, because this Haggadah. It kept on surprising us. We thought we had discovered the secret or the story behind the Haggadah, and then we would find something else in it, or somebody would tell us something else about it, and it would completely change the story. So it was really, the book kept on uh, surprising us. It was a wonderful, you know, journey of discovery, and we still haven't reached the final end of it. I mean, there are some very serious unanswered questions, but I think we got to the point where we can actually say these are the choices you can make about how the Haggadah came to be. Uh, what we do know for certain is this, this, or this is what we think, actually this is not what we know for certain, but this is what we think was the history of the Haggadah. Uh, the, it's an illustrated Haggadah, and the way illustrated Haggadot are produced is that first the scribe writes the Hebrew text. Just the Hebrew text in the center of the page. He usually plans out the overall shape of the page, so where illustrations go, if there's going to be decorations, where they would go, and so on. But he writes the text himself. And the scribe who wrote the text of the Monks Haggadah was undoubtedly a very skilled and very skillful professional Jewish scribe. You know, he was a born Jew, he was a pious Jew. There's no question about that. He probably wrote it in the last 
quarter or third of the 15th century in South Germany around the area of the city Passau. Now, in the year 14, I think it's 1478, there was a famous host scandal in Passau. The Jewish the Jews of Passau were accused of stealing the host, as I say, the uh, you know the wafer and uh, wine that's used during communion in the church, yes. and specifically of piercing and abusing the wafer. Mm-hmm. And this was a crime that Jews were frequently accused of in the Middle Ages. Uh, it was you know proof of. The, the Jews' desecration of the host was proof of their hatred of, um, of Christianity. And by desecrating the host in this way, the Jews were reenacting the crucifixion of, of Christ. Mm-hmm. And along with the blood libel accusation, where Jews were accused of killing a, uh, a Christian child in order to use his blood in Jewish rituals and primarily in making a matzah for the Seder, mm-hmm. these are the two great accusations against Jews. Mm-hmm. In the year, I think it's 1478, there was a post scandal in Passau. The Jews of the city were either, were either forced to convert to Christianity or expelled. Mm-hmm. A number of Jews converted to Christianity but many left, and we believe this Haggadah in an unfinished state was left behind. Mm-hmm. In one way or another, it came into the hands of a Christian pastor. He actually worked in the cathedral of Passau named Paulus Juan, mm-hmm. or Vaughn, W-A-N-N. Mm-hmm. And Vaughn was a very interesting guy. He had a lot of connections. He was a theologian. He was also a book dealer. He was interested in the book business and had a lot of connections with monasteries, including Tegernsee. And he had trained at the University of Vienna, together with a number of other people, including a number of people at this monastery, Tegernsee. And there was a theological circle at the University of Vienna that was very interested in the Eucharist, the communion, mm-hmm. as the basis of Christianity and of the, you know, sort of as the key of Christianity. Um, and because of his interest in the Eucharist, Paul Svon was interested in the Seder and the Haggadah, because these were the Jewish analogs to the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. So this Haggadah came into his hands, and what we think is that he hired some Jews who had converted to Christianity to complete the Haggadah. One of them may have been a professional scribe or a trained illustrator, that person completed the vocalization of the Haggadah text and also did the illustrations. And the illustrations, the person who did the illustrations very clearly knew what he was doing because at first glance, they looked very, very similar to the, the illustrations, say, in the Washington Haggadah or in other Haggadah done by Joel Ben Simeon or other scribe illustrators of the period. So similar, in fact, that every Jewish art historian who looked at the Sagada or the pictures in it before we started working on it just paid no attention to them. They just said it was a typical South German Haggadah. Mm-hmm. What, Shal- what Sarit, 
So he discovered was that the pictures were not typical South German illustrations that you would find in a Haggadah of the period. But that in several of the illustrations, the artist had introduced little details, new details that thoroughly Christianized the meaning of the picture and, by extension, the meaning of the entire Haggadah and turned it into a book not about commemorating the exodus from Sinai, but actually celebrating the second coming of Christ. The real redemption for Christianity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and her discovery of these illustrations really was one of the real bombshells mm-hmm. of our journey of discovery. Uh, it must have entirely changed uh, the your anticipation of what this was all about. Oh, and absolutely, absolutely. I mean, before Sarri discovered, you know, made her discoveries about the illustrations, uh, Christoph and I had worked on this prologue, and the prologue in itself was amazing enough. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, because it, it's, it's actually our earliest ethnography of Jewish practice, and it really gives you this bird's-eye view of what a Christian in the late 15th century knew and thought about and interpreted the meaning of the Seder, of the Jews. It's, it's quite amazing. Uh, and also from uh, what you indicate in your text, it gives a, a fairly accurate, in most instances, uh, error-free account of what the Jews did, ex- except, of course, exactly. the blood libel. Yeah, he, he had extraordinarily accurate knowledge and extensive knowledge. He knew things about Jewish practice in Ashkenaz, because the uh, traditional name for that area of Jewish culture in you know Germany, northern France, Western Europe, uh, in the Middle Ages, he knew things about Ashkenazi practice in the 15th century that I did not know about, and that most of my colleagues did not know about. We actually had to research them. That is so exciting. Yeah, no, really, it was quite yes. amazing what he knew, and. Um, and we think that he learned about this. He didn't speak to Jews. He was present at the most famous blood libel trial of the late 15th century, which took place in Trent. It was the blood libel trial where the Jews of Trent were accused of killing the child Simon, mm-hmm. Simon of Trent, and using his blood for the matzah. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a famous trial uh, it justified the expulsion of Jews from many places in Germany, subsequently. Uh, and the author of the prologue, Erhard von Pappenheim, appears to have been at that trial as an assistant of another Dominican friar who was a so-called expert on Jews. And he listened to the confessions of the Jews. Now, when I say confessions... Uh, I use the term with a grain of salt. Um, the Jews were brought to trial. They were accused of murdering Simon. They, of course, denied this because they certainly did not do this. Mm-hmm. Then they would be put to torture, which was a legitimate mode of extracting the truth in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. And after being tortured and fed leading questions, they would begin slowly to confess to the crimes that they were accused of. Mm-hmm. 
But in the course of doing that, they also told an enormous amount about Jewish practice aside from these crimes. Because they would be asked questions about the Seder, what do you do at the Seder, and so on. What is this practice? What is that practice? We've heard this. Is this true or not? And they would speak about all of this. Mm-hmm. And it was apparently from these, you know, this testimony that Earhart learned an enormous amount about Jewish practice at the Seder, not only about the ritual murder of Simon, or the child, but about Jewish practice in general. And most of that knowledge was accurate. Mm-hmm. You, you, one, one that I uh, might ask you to uh, share with our listeners is to, Tokofa, or in yeah, Hebrew, the Tokufa? Tokofa. The Tokofa was a belief which was extraordinarily widespread in medieval Judaism, not only in Ashkenaz, also in Sfarad, in Spain. And actually we have sources that go back to uh, the 10th century in Babylonia. It was a belief that the turn of the seasons, that the solstice and the, uh, what's the other one? Uh, I'm forgetting. Yeah, when the seasons turn, spring, um, winter, and so on. Mm which are times of crisis, as it were, in a kind of cosmic sense. This is when uh, the guard in heaven is changing, as it were. And at the moment that it's changing, nobody's really in charge. Mm -hmm. At these moments, it was believed that either drops of blood or poison water fell from heaven. And if they fell into an open vat of water, they would poison the water. And if you drank the water, you would uh, incur hydropsis, a swelling up of the body, and you would, you know, eventually explode. Uh, You could sort of reverse the poisoning of the water by merely thrusting an iron bar into the water. For some reason, this would somehow neutralize the poison. And this was an extraordinarily widespread belief. But only among Jews. Yeah, among Jews, not among anyone else, Mm -hmm. as far as we know. I mean, there are some little details, like the use of the iron bar actually is something that's known from non-Jewish practice, too. Mm -hmm. You know, folk beliefs. Mm -hmm. Um, But the, yeah, but the the word Tekofa, was called the Tekofa Nashkazi pronunciation, it's really the Hebrew tikufa, which means the sort of the tikufot are the seasons, and specifically oh. these points where the seasons turn, like the solstice and so on. Um, uh, yeah, but it was a, it was a Jewish practice. It was it was known. The Jews must have talked about it at their trial. Earhart learned about it. He considers it a completely ridiculous, nonsensical. Belief, and he wonders why or how the Jews who are so smart can ever believe in it. Mm. But in fact, it's a very widespread belief, and it persisted until, you know, 18th, 19th century even. Uh, we have uh, Jewish almanacs, you know, with calendars in them, which actually still list them in the 19th century. Oh, that's Today, though, it's been totally lost, forgotten. Oh, yes, Nobody I had never it. heard of that, and so yeah. I was particularly interested that Erhard records it. 
because I think when when uh, scholars went and, and he was certainly a scholar um, record those details of, of Jewish practice going back centuries ago, um, st- students are fascinated uh, to hear about these practices and uh, to some extent sometimes the spirituality as well as the sense of uh, magic that um, that they reflected. So this no, is- absolutely, absolutely. No, and it's and in general. The most striking thing is that Earhart really does report very, you know, fairly, I mean, almost journalistically, mm-hmm. without bias, mm-hmm. Jewish behavior. Um, he doesn't try to demonize the Jews. He doesn't turn them into monsters. Um, you know, he doesn't like them. They hate Christians. Their beliefs are pernicious. Mm-hmm. And all of that... You know, he's a very, he reflects traditional Christian views of Jews. But when he actually talks about their practices, he's quite objective. He doesn't accuse them of being magicians, for example, Mm -hmm. which is very clear, or being demonic. Um, He really does treat them as people. Mm -hmm. Again, like an ethnographer, uh, a very scientific, um, matter-of-fact recording of what he understands about them. Yes, Yes, and it's a very detailed, and, you know, he also, his Hebrew was exceptionally good, uh, especially for, like, 15th century. Not many, at his time, I don't think there were many people in Europe who knew Hebrew as well as he did. Mm-hmm. That, that was intriguing to read, that, in fact, he was uh, self-taught because there weren't very many Jews around. Yeah. Uh, and so he learned it from the Bible, uh, and that perhaps also explained the very rare errors he made which, as I understand it, and please correct me, uh, from from your essays, uh, the error he made was to um, misinterpret rabbinic uh, a rabbinic statement uh, because he was looking at it from a biblical perspective. Biblical, yeah, he, didn't, he didn't understand the rabbinic idiom, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and he translated in a very literal fashion based on his knowledge of biblical Hebrew. Um, as it was, his mistranslation dovetailed almost perfectly with a theological belief he had, which is that actually the Jews secretly do wish for the coming of Christ mm-hmm. or a dying Messiah. <laughs> and um, and he was able to read that into the Haggadah thanks to uh, his theological belief and his lack of knowledge of rabbinic Hebrew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the reason he was doing this in the first place, well, there was the request from the abbot at the monastery uh, for a preface which I, or a prologue, which I understand um, ended up taking two years, and thus he perhaps uh, turned it into uh, the very detailed report. Yeah, a longer book than he was initially asked for. I mean, what happened was that, uh, it, to complete the story of the Haggadah, it, after the Haggadah fell into the hands of Paulus Vaughn, mm-hmm. this pastor in, in Passau, Great. who then, we think, had it completed, possibly by a Jewish scribe who had converted to Christianity, clearly someone who knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Paulus Vaughn died, and he left a bunch of his books to this monastery of Tegernze, whose abbot and librarian had actually studied with him in Vienna in the same circle of theologians who were very interested in the Eucharist. So he left this book with a few other books to Tegernze. Tegernze was a monastery, is a monastery 
outside of Munich, not far from Munich, which in the 15th century had a great library, one of the greatest libraries in Europe. They say it was, it was better than the Vatican's <laughs> during that period. Um, he left it to Tegernsee, presumably as a book for monks to study. <laughs> Unfortunately, when it got to the monastery, it seems that it was too subtle for the monks to understand, or they didn't know Hebrew well enough. And the abbot and the librarian decided to send it to this monk named Erhard von Pappenheim, this friar, mm-hmm. not a monk, he, he was a friar, a Dominican friar named Erhard von Pappenheim, and they asked him who they knew, knew they knew that Erhard knew Hebrew and knew something, knew quite a bit about Judaism because they must have known that he had been at the trial. They asked him if he would kind of write an introduction and explain what this book was. And that's how this prologue, which took him two years to write, which is much longer and extensive probably than what they initially thought, you know, asked for. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what this prologue does. It explains the Haggadah and the Seder to the monks in the monastery. Mm-hmm. And he wrote it, and a copy of it was made. It was all bound together with the Haggadah. And it was studied a little bit by the monks, not a lot, but it basically, uh, you know, sat on the shelf for three, four hundred years. Mm-hmm. And until you discovered it. Until we discovered it. I mean, it was, it, uh, the, the monasteries in Germany were nationalized during the time of Napoleon. The library was dissolved. It was all taken to the Bavarian State Library in Munich, and that's where it actually is today. Um, so the book did travel a little bit during that period, but nobody really studied it. Mm-hmm. And we have no reason to think there were changes that were made no, during that no, time. No, there definitely were no changes made. Uh-huh. Uh, Erhard was part of the Vienna School as well, and that was part of his connection? Well, yeah, he, he seemed to have had connections with, with the Vienna School, mm-hmm. It's not clear that he, we don't know that he knew um, uh, Paulus Vaughn. He certainly knew the people in the Tegernsee Monastery, but he had some connections. We don't know if he actually studied with them or not, but he too is very interested in the Eucharist. And, I mean, what's interesting about uh, Erhard is that, I mean, Erhard is known as, we call him a Christian Hebraist. Christian Hebraists were Christians who, especially in the late Middle Ages and the early modern period, uh, they were learned Christians who believed that the secrets of Christianity could be found in the books of the Jews, and particularly in the Bible and in books of Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. Those are the two areas which they were tended to be most interested in. These Christians were, as I say, often very learned. They knew Hebrew. They were able to read the books uh, they came up with their interpretations, which showed that there were Christian meanings. All of this in the belief that if they could show the Jews that their literature, the Jews' literature, contained the secrets of Christianity, they would be able to convince the Jews to convert. Um, so, and, uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, objective scholarship for scholarship's uh-huh. sake. Right, uh, it was a real dialogue. agenda, and they all knew, they all believed, you know, very profoundly that Judaism was a, a false religion, that the Jews 
you know, were wrong in rejecting Christ and had pernicious beliefs, and that they even believe that the Jews, some Jews knew that these secrets were hidden in these books and actually had hid them in the books mm-hmm. because they didn't want other Jews to see them and uh-huh. therefore recognize Christ uh-huh. or the truth of Christianity. But now most Christian Hebrews, though, as I said, were interested in the Bible or in uh, Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. These are the sort of texts in which they believe they would find the mysteries of Christianity hidden. Mm-hmm. Earhart seems almost exclusively interested only in the Haggadah. Oh. And especially in Jewish practice. So he, that, this makes him a very unusual Christian Hebraist. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he actually, he doesn't even seem to be so interested in studying the Haggadah in order to convert the Jews, so much as to be able to show Christians how the secrets of Christianity are actually found in the Jews' Seder, and how the Eucharist and the Seder are, in fact, closely related. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very, his approach is actually quite modern. It's something that one doesn't find among many other Christians of his period. It was enlightening to uh, read in your essays that it was uh, not all at negative on his part, but that he saw the Jewish background to the life and the preaching of Jesus. Um, yeah, in a very sometimes in a very positive way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, surprisingly positive. But I say, I mean, he he doesn't he doesn't love Jews. Mm-hmm. Don't misunderstand me, but he just doesn't demonize them. Mm-hmm. And he's very capable of acknowledging that there may be a certain truth, certain types of truth to be found in Judaism, or at least that knowing about Jewish practice can actually be truly valuable for understanding Christianity Mm -hmm. and its early development. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, I I was also intrigued, you you go through quite um, a number of um, Jewish rituals that are part of the Seder and identified in the Haggadah, uh, it was intriguing to see how Erhard would fully understand the search for leaven and have that accurate, even though that's that's done beforehand and it's not anything he would have participated in. Uh, well, well he, I think he, yeah, I don't think he ever participated or saw uh, the search for chametz mm-hmm. uh, for leaven bread. No, the Jews confessed about it, but they confessed about it apparently in great detail, and he heard it all and took very good notes and records that in the uh, in his prologue. Mm-hmm. And uh, one other um, tradition that he uh, recorded in an interesting manner was the uh, ritual of opening the door before the recitation of Pour Out Your Wrath. Right. Which he records, I guess, as a Christological. Yeah, so, yeah, he uh, he sees it as the moment that Christ will appear. But he, he says the Jews expect the Messiah to come at that point. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and there was the interesting connection, too, with um, Elijah, with Eliyahu being present at the circumcision, um, um, which, which I guess um, suggests that uh, Jews have a tradition of um, this magical appearance of, um, of a Messiah. Um, at events or the frequent frequent appearance. I don't know, I might be conflating two different parts of... Uh, yeah, I'm not, I don't remember where he mentions Elijah, but in the picture that he has on that page, see, that, that's actually one of the great uh, 
little changes that the illustrator introduced into the Haggadah. On that page, the page when you open up the door, is also the prayer on that page is a curse of the Gentiles. Yes. Now, in these Haggadot, the South German Haggadot of the late 15th century, it became conventional to put a picture on that page of the Messiah riding a white donkey, as he's described in the book of Zechariah, arriving at the house of a Jew, and he's often led by a figure, sometimes with a chauffeur, who is the prophet Elijah announcing the Messiah's arrival. Oh, interesting. As you would expect. <laughs> now, why exactly that picture is on that page is not clear. Maybe the Jews believed that the curses against the Gentiles would only be fulfilled when the Messiah had come. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was hard for them, I'm sure, to imagine them being fulfilled during their lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe it's there sort of to, you know, sound counteract or serve as a balance to the anger on the page, this scene of the arrival of the Messiah, universal peace and so on. But in any case, the picture is there, and that's the traditional picture is the, is the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah riding a white donkey, which is what you have in the prophet, in, 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 in the biblical prophet in Zechariah. In the, in the monk's Haggadah, and you have that picture actually in the Washington Haggadah, too. I mean, and there it's the Messiah riding a white donkey, and his, the entire family is actually sitting behind him on the white donkey. They're all going to meet the, the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Um, in, the, in the monk's Agata, you have that same picture with the little detail that is not changed, which is that he's not riding a white donkey. He's riding a white horse. Usually in the pictures, the donkey is depressed. Its head is laid low. In this picture, the the white horse is galloping. It's exultant. There's only one place in the entire Bible where the Messiah or a Messiah-like figure arrives riding a white horse and not a white donkey. And that's in the book of Revelations. And that's describing Christ's second coming. Interesting. So it's the second coming of the Messiah. Uh So by changing the donkey for the white horse, a small detail, the illustrator changed the picture from being about the arrival of the Jewish Messiah Uh to being a picture about the second coming of Christ. Uh Interesting. So this is where some of the mysteries opened up as... uh, so we looked at the illustrations and found the changes from the right. ones. Exactly, exactly. Uh, l- let me uh, ask you uh, a quick question about the text before we wrap up, because I see I've taken a lot of sure. your time. Um, did, did you notice differences in the text? I was curious. I didn't see the traditional next year in Jerusalem that, uh, or that's traditional uh, today. Uh, was that in the text? Yeah, no, that's not in the text, and uh, Haggadah mm-hmm. is not in the text. The uh, texts of both Haggadot, the Washington and the uh, Monks Haggadah, ends with Adir Hu, you know, that song, yes. uh, you know, he is uh, exalted 
uh, may build the temple speedily in the future, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, the Hagadya does not actually, which is a folk song, which is a popular folk song, it had, it's, a, it's called a chain song. You know, that's sort of, its, oh, yes. uh, that's what its genre is. Yes. It originally had nothing to do with Passover or the Seder. Mm-hmm. It was a popular folk song. Oh. That does not actually appear in the Haggadah until the printed Haggadah, and actually not until the 17th century. The uh, early 17th century in one of the Italian Haggadot, I don't remember actually offhand exactly which one, I think the Venice or the Mantua Haggadah, and uh, it was probably sung at some people's houses before that, but it doesn't appear in, a, in, in the Haggadah until about 200 years after either the Monk's Haggadah or the Washington Haggadah, 150 to 200 years after that. Uh, you know, aside from that, there's some small differences between the texts, but not many differences. More or less, these are the same texts of the Haggadah, and you could use either one of these Haggadot at your Seder if they weren't such beautiful facsimiles and you don't, you know, you don't mind spilling wine on them, you can use them. <laughs> that, that's always a good sign, though, that they have been used, so nothing yes, wrong with doing that. They've been used. Right. <laughs> um, can, how, how can we tell that the Adir Who was sung? Um, well, we can't tell that. That's a good question. We can't tell that it was sung. We just assume it was sung because uh, because it's a song. <laughs> it's a poem that has all the features of a um, of a ballad with uh-huh. a refrain that's repeating and so yes. on. Oh, interesting. Um, so you know, we but we no, you're you're right. We don't know. They could have just chanted. They could have well, just recited it, not even chanted it. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been pretty boring. Right. Um, I mean, I think our, the assumption is, is that by that time, right. people are so tired, they either want to sing or go to sleep. There you have it, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, well, let me ask you our traditional uh, question to wrap up with New Books and Jewish Studies. Uh, what are you working on now? I'm just finishing a uh, history of the Jewish Bible as a physical book. It's uh, as a material object. Uh it has three parts. It's, the first part is about the, the history of the Torah scroll, which has a very interesting, complicated history. The second part is about the Hebrew Bible as a codex, or what we call a book. And that goes from manuscripts through the printed book, basically from the 10th century until the 16th century. And then the last part is about the, about the, the, the Jewish Bible since the 16th century, down till today, which is mainly a story about the Jewish Bible and translation. But it's a really, uh, it's a book about the history of the Bible as a book, not as a text, but as a physical object, and the different ways it's changed, which have been quite enormous. Well, that sounds truly fascinating, and I hope you'll agree to be back on New Books. I'll be delighted to do that. That'd be great. Thank you so much for your time. To our listeners, I want to uh, thank you for listening to David Stern, Harvard University Harry Starr Professor of Classical and Modern Jewish and Hebrew Literature and Professor of Comparative Literature, talk about two of his books, The Washington Haggadah, published in 2011 by Harvard University Press, and The Monk's Haggadah, 
published uh, by Penn State University Press in 2015. Uh, both volumes are available at Amazon.com or through the University Press websites or through your favorite independent booksellers. So be sure to look for them. Thank you, and stay tuned to another episode of New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you.